Dennis Kinlaw was a professor of Old Testament history, theology, and languages. He had the ability to make the Word of God come alive, and we believe wholeheartedly in the power of God's Word to change lives through the Holy Spirit. We hope this message will quicken your interest in God's redemptive story. In 1955, I had a Presbyterian preacher friend who uh, was sure that I, as a Methodist, didn't have a good education. And so he decided I needed uh, some education in Scotland at the hands of good Scottish Presbyterians. I was younger in those days, and uh, he worked it out, and so I was able to spend one term in Edinburgh University in New College, which is a theological school. I was interested in Old Testament at that time, and so I picked up what I could get in Edinburgh, but I found as I talked with the professor there that there was a Semitics professor at Glasgow that was excellent in Old Akkadian, Babylonian. So he said, why don't you go visit him? So I would go over once a week and spend an afternoon with Dr. C.J. Mullow Weir. And he began to introduce me to a little of ancient cuneiform. I found that there were a lot of happy things about that because I would ride the train and I got a chance to see Scotland from picturesque Edinburgh to more uh, of a, uh, an industrial city like Glasgow. But all of their universities were extremely beautiful. But I found that in that time that I was commuting back and forth once a week to Glasgow, that Billy Graham had come to Glasgow. And so I thought I'd love to hear him. Now, it happened that I knew the man that he had brought to to Scotland to do the speaking at noon to the preachers, a man who was on the board of trustees here, a man by the name of Paul Rees. So I found out where Paul Rees was staying and got my courage in my hands and went to visit him. And he said, well, Dennis, would you like to go to service tonight? And I said, well, yes, I'd love to. And so uh, that's what I was hoping. Well, he said, let me give you a, you don't have a ticket, do you? And I said, no. He said, "Uh, let me give you a a letter, a personal letter, and you give to the person at the the gate, and they will let you in. So uh, I stayed with Dr. C.J. Muller Weir most of the afternoon, and It was after five before I got away, and I began walking across the campus. Now, the University of Glasgow is uh, not, uh, it it is, it it does not have dormitories on its campus. It is not a residential university, and so the students commute. So in the late afternoon, oftentimes, they just lock it up, which I didn't know. And so I started across the campus in a new way toward the stadium where, uh, or the great arena where Billy Graham was preaching. And as I walked along, I found myself bumping into a Scottish gentleman, and we began to talk. I found out he was a military man who taught geography in the University of, uh, of Glasgow. So I said to him, uh, uh, have you been to hear Dr. Graham? He said, no, I'm going tonight. That's where I'm headed. So I said, great. Do you have a ticket? He said, no, do you need a ticket to get in? And he, I said, well, I was told I would need one. I said, why don't you go with me? I've got one, and I think it's good enough to get both of us in. And so uh, we walked, and it was a good thing. 
for me because when we got to the edge of the campus, it was padlocked. But fortunately, Colonel Jolly, that was his name, he had a key. So we were able to get out and go on our way across to the arena where Billy was speaking. I did what Dr. Reese told me to do, and when I went to the open, to the gate where that faced the university there, and I showed my letter, which I didn't know what it contained, to uh, the person. He took it and read it, and he turned to and said, follow me. So Dr. Jolly and I followed him in, and uh, he took us in through the stadium, in through those recesses, you know, and then he said, right through that door. And so I walked up through that door and walked through, and I was standing on the platform of Billy Graham's crusade. Now, at that moment, I was shocked, but then I thought, what about Colonel Jolly? Well, let me tell you, he didn't flinch. It was as if he were under fire. He just walked right along with me, and so the two of us sat in select spots right on the platform that night. I'd never, I always wondered what Dr. Jolly thought, or Colonel Jolly thought about that afterwards. But nevertheless, uh, it was an interesting experience to hear Billy. It was a ma marvelous thing. They closed that crusade in a huge park, soccer park, Ibrox Park in Glasgow, as it was called then. So I made it my business to be there that night. It was a Friday night, and after I'd finished my time with Dr. Mullow Weir, I went. I don't know how many thousands of people there were, but I found that uh, in their parks, their soccer parks, you don't have seats, you stand. So you can get a lot more people into one of those than you can into ours. And so I found myself through, and it was open, and it was raining. I thought, well, there won't be too many people here, but it was absolutely jammed. And I thought, well, Billy won't preach too long with it raining like this, and they'll abbreviate the service. They didn't abbreviate a thing. And everybody sat, sat or stood, if he had a seat, and stood, if he didn't, glued to the spot where he was. It was an unbelievable service. The Spirit of God moved tremendously. Well, the service ran late, and I knew that for me to get back to Edinburgh, I had a 10 o'clock train I had to catch in downtown Glasgow, which meant I had to get out and chase down a, a, a subway entry and a subway and get downtown and then get to my station to get back to Edinburgh. So... Uh, when the service was coming to a close, the invitation had been given, people were responding, I slipped out and started making my way to get to a subway station. I was in a hurry, and so as soon as I got out of the mass of people crowding out, I uh, found that as I moved down the street, the sidewalk was jammed with, I think, eight people abreast, just right up solid. So in good American fashion, I got out in the street and began trotting down the street. And as I trotted down the street, I suddenly stopped, stopped still. I felt as if I were suddenly standing in the midst of a cathedral with my clothes not properly adjusted. And as I stood there, I thought it can't be. But it seemed to me the whole city was ringing with, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. 
Those people that were lined up eight abreast on that sidewalk, for I don't know how many blocks and on both sides, were standing there waiting to get into the subway I was looking for. And they were all utilizing the time singing the 23rd Psalm to the old Scottish tune, Crimin. Cold chills ran over me from head to toe. I do not think I have ever had a more moving moment in my life. I stood there sort of thunderstruck and in adoration and praise. And suddenly somebody jostled me and I turned and it was this Bobby who looked at me and said, you're an American, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, where are you going? I said, are all those people trying to get in the same subway I need to get in? And he said, yes. He said, do you need to get on that subway? I said, I've got a 10 o'clock train to catch back to Edinburgh if it follow me. So he took me right to the head of the line and looked at one of those Scots and said, he's an American, let him in. And so I slipped in and I got my train and I got back to Edinburgh on time, all right. But you know, I will never look at the 23rd Psalm, but that I find some of those goose pimples coming back. As I remember that night, standing in a street in the city of Glasgow, with thousands of Scots singing, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want, he makes me down to lie. Now, I suspect that's one of the reasons that I've had trouble ever, ever feeling adequate to even attempt to look at the 23rd Psalm. Because what an incredible passage it is. It would be a fascinating thing to find the story of the influence of the 23rd Psalm on human lives across the history of the church because there are multiplied thousands of people that at strategic and maybe tragic moments and extremely difficult moments in their lives, they have found themselves almost unconsciously turning to this matchless psalm to find strength and grace for the moment of great need. Let me just read it for you, and uh, uh, it, is, it is so beautiful, there's nothing you can do to destroy it, but here it is and there's nothing you can do to be adequate to it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I doubt if in 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 all of human history, there has ever been a more magnificent bit of poetry that is witness, testimony poetry, than this. The psalmist, and we are told it was David, it certainly fits that he was a shepherd, but whoever it was understood shepherding and could speak in that kind of metaphor. And so he says, and the Hebrew is even more dramatic than the English, because it is much more cryptic. In fact, the first line is only two words, Yahweh, Ro'i. Yahweh 
my shepherd. And that's what it's about. Yahweh, my shepherd. Now, you will remember that the first one we dealt with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, the eighth psalm, deals with the glory of God and it deals with the greatness of the human person. Not great because of anything we have done, but great because that's the way our Father made us, the Creator made us. And so we talked about the intimacy that is implicit within that psalm, the, Im the implicit uh, intimacy that is there because of the nature of the, of the two beings, God the Creator and man the created. It is possible for a very intimate relationship where he can remembers us and he visits us. Then we turn to the, to the 16th Psalm, that is a psalm where the, the psalmist speaks his testimony, and it is said, it's interesting, the crux of that psalm is simply two words, Yahweh Adonai. Two words make up the sentence, Yahweh is my Lord. Then he speaks and says, Atah, Yahweh. You are my Lord. Atta Adonai. You are my Lord. Two words says what it's about. So that sermon describes who Yahweh is in terms of his lordship and how significant that is for him. Now you find the psalmist speaking simply two words. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord is my shepherd. Now I'm not about to talk to you about shepherding because I don't know much about that. But it is a metaphor which the psalmist uses for one who has a flock of sheep for which he is responsible. It is his business to care for them, and it is his business to see that their every need is met. Now, in that ancient world, that was even more impressive in, for, for many than it is for us. Because in that ancient world, one of the metaphors that was used for a king was shepherd. You read the, the literature of, of Egypt and you will find that the Pharaoh carried a shepherd's staff because he was the shepherd of the people of Israel. You will find that there were other kings in the ancient Near East that were looked upon as shepherds because the king was responsible for his, for his subjects, for the citizens of his kingdom, the people that had looked, that looked to him as their sovereign. Now again, in that relationship, you and I tend to think of a position like that as a place of great power for the person to use for his own gain. But basically, it was understood in the ancient world that that king was responsible for the well-being of his people. And that always is true when you get a person in a major position of leadership. I remembered as I was looking at this, thinking, remembering a story which was told me in the office here one day when I was visiting with a very prominent graduate of Asbury College. He was a bishop from India, and he was a most remarkable man. And he began to tell me about his relationship to Pandit Nehru and to Gandhi, and he knew them well. He was the dean of the Christian missionaries in India. He said one day, Mr. Nehru sent for him and said, I have a, I have a request to make of you. And he said, uh, the, the bishop said, if I can be of help, let me know. And he said, well, I would like for you to make a trip to the United States for me. 
He said, you see, we're having great drought in India. And he said, the end result is that our crops are going to be very limited. So there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people who will perish, who will starve to death this year unless we can get grain. He said, your country is awash in grain. He said, would you be willing to be my personal representative to go to the United States and talk with your government, whoever, whomever you can get to, about the possibility of loans of wheat for our country? Now, the interesting thing was that Wascom Pickett, at the top of the hill here, if you go out this street, it's called the top house at the top of the hill is the old Pickett home. It's interesting that the man who was vice president at that time had been almost a foster child in the Pickett home that subsequently moved to Wilmore. L.L. Pickett was an evangelist, very interesting evangelist. He himself was not educated, but he had the Greek New Testament read every morning at his breakfast table. And when Wascom was eight years of age, he was the one assigned to read the Greek lesson every morning at the, at the breakfast table. Well, anyway, uh, he said immediately Wascom Pickett thought, well, I have a connection in Washington. And so he went to Washington and went to see uh, his almost foster brother. And he, when he talked with Vice President, he said, there's a young senator here from, Missouri, from Minnesota. If you get his support, you will get your grain." So he said, I found myself in a luncheon with 10 other senators. And he said, Mr. He said to me, Bishop, you have 20 minutes to make your case. He said, I spoke for 19 and a half and sat down and knew I had 14 votes in my pocket. But he said, the 15th, the man had never looked at me once and was writing when I stood up and he was still writing when I sat down. But he said, when I sat down, that 15th senator stood up and said, men, I think this is the most important thing I've heard all day, and I don't think I'm going to hear anything any more important. I move we give the bishop 15 more minutes. He said, I was pleased with that. And then I found out that it was Averill Harriman, who was a very close associate and friend of Roosevelt. He said, I had no problem getting my grain, and so the wheat was shipped to India, and there were thousands of people whose lives were saved. Now, a person who stands in a position of leadership is responsible for the people committed to him, and the psalmist is taking advantage of that and finding comfort in it. He says, Yahweh, the one who created the whole universe, the one who makes the seed that you put in the ground that produces the wheat, the one that gives the rain that, fer that, that causes it to, to give birth and grow. He said, that one who is responsible for all that feeds the human race, he's my shepherd and he's responsible for me. He's my king and he will care for me. So the next line is two words too. In the Hebrew, lo exar, and what it means is, I shall not lack. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? Now, you and I know it as I shall not want, but uh, I've heard that so many times that the first time I realized that what it really says is, 
I shall not lack. It was almost as if it were a new, uh, new psalm to me. But what he's saying is, since he is my shepherd, and since he is who he is, I shall not lack, because he owns everything, and he cares about me. Now, it's because of that that one German biblical scholar said that the 23rd Psalm is a, uh, is a statement on the Hebrew term he'emin, which means he believed. It's the word used in Genesis 15, 6, where God speaks and says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Now, I think there is a sense in which this 23rd Psalm is a statement of faith. It is the psalmist statement of what he believes about the God whom he worships and the God to whom he belongs and the God who belongs to him. Now, it's interesting, there, there are several things that he says out of that. I shall not lack. I shall not lack how. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, which means for the sheep there's plenty of grass. And what grass is for the sheep, bread is to you and me. So he is saying, this is the one who gives to us what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Which makes me wonder if Jesus did not intend for us to pray that Lord's Prayer every day. So that every day we recognize that the food that sits on our table, that our wives prepare for us or someone else fixes for us, that that food is a gift from a loving Father who cares about us and has made a universe, made a world productive so that we are cared for. He makes me to lie down comfortably in the midst of plenty of grass, and he leads me beside the still waters. And so you get the bread and the water, you, you get the bread and the drink that we need, and it is not too much to say that the shepherd who gives us that bread is the shepherd who gives us the bread and the wine which we enjoyed earlier this morning. And if he will give us that which symbolizes himself, if he will give us himself, certainly he will take care of us in the other areas of our life. And so we get an Old Testament counterpart to seek ye first the kingdom of God. Let him be king. Let him be the shepherd. Seek ye first the kingdom of God in his righteousness. And these other things will be added to us. Now, that has made a world of difference in the history of the church. That's made a world of difference in terms of just history itself. When you find people who dare to believe that they can look to God and trust him, and he will care for them. I had a chance once to spend an afternoon walking over some mountains in New York with Norman Grubb, who was a son-in-law, of C.T. Studd, and I had been a great admirer of C.T. Studd because his biography had profoundly influenced me. And I said, what was it like living with C.T. Studd? Well, he said, interesting. He said, I was his son-in-law. That made it more interesting. He lived with him for 17 years in the midst of Africa. He said, let me tell you a story. He said, one of the most interesting rituals that we had was when the mail came. He said, we got it normally about every fortnight, every two weeks. He said, it was always a ritual. 
He said, Charlie Studd would take the mail and he'd open it. And he said, what was in it determined whether we, what we had to work with as far as money was concerned. And he said he'd open it and shake it all out and look at it. And we all waited to hear what he'd say because we knew it would be something remarkable. One day he said, hallelujah, bless God forever. He knows what a bunch of grumblers we are. He sent us all that we need to keep us quiet. He said, one fortnight, he opened it all up and looked at it and said, hallelujah, bless God forever. We must be growing in faith and grace. We don't have enough to care for our needs. <laughs> said, one day, he said, I will never forget. There was nothing. And we all waited to see what Charlie would say. And he said he looked at it and he raised his head and said, Hallelujah, bless God forever. We're in the kingdom already. For in the kingdom there is neither eating nor drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. But regardless of whether there was anything there, Charlie Studd spent the last 17 years of his life from 54 to 71 in the midst there and God cared for him. Read the life of Hudson Taylor. Read the life of George Mueller. Go through the history of the church and you will find there are a thousand witnesses to the, what the psalmist is saying, the Lord's my shepherd, I will not lack. Now, you will notice the extent to which he says he, we will not lack. He uh, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I am glad that he included this part which is translated, he restores my soul. Now the Hebrew word there is nephesh, and the Septuagint translates it for psyche, suke. So what is being spoken of is the bread we eat and the water that we drink takes care of the physical body, but you and I are more than physical bodies. We're psyches, we're spirits. And the interesting thing is our spirits need food just as much as our bodies. And if we do not get it, we are depleted. There are times when God puts into our life the most unexpected thing that adds something of beauty, something of charm, something of humor, something of joy, something of interest that pulls us out of ourselves and renews us so we can go on our way. I don't know what it is that restores you, but God's made a world where there are incredible things to restore our psyches and give us new energy and new strength. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but uh, music will do that to some extent for me. I was traveling somewhere recently listening to a classical radio station, and they put on uh, some string quartets of Haydn, I don't know enough about music to talk very much about this. But uh, I started listening, and uh, I'm always enamored because there's always something there I'd, more I'd like to know about. So as I was listening, suddenly I thought, wait a minute, that's familiar. And I began to hear, I said, what's that tune? And then that string quartet was, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken formed thee for his own abode. 
Now, Haydn didn't write those words, but somebody listened to, got the inspiration and listened to Haydn and said, man, that music and that poetry goes together. And so one of our great hymns, and before I began to realize that it was glorious things, it was as if my soul had been bathed. It was as if my spirit had been completely reinvigorated. And I found myself more eager for whatever the next assignment was. Now, let me ask you, is that the reason he gives you a night for every day? And that's the reason he gives a sunrise every morning and a sunset every night? Is that the reason our world is full of birds and of trees? When I was in Korea in 1959, there wasn't a tree in the country. They'd all been cut down and used for fuel or food or some other needy purpose. It was bare. I preached to people that lived in the ground, came up out of the ground like rabbits coming out of their holes in the ground, and it was ground. There was nothing else. There was nothing green there. Last time I was in Korea, it is as lush as any place in the United States. They made it a capital offense to cut a tree down. You cut a tree down, they'd electrocute you. So there are plenty of trees in Korea now. <laughs> but it's interesting how much easier that is on a person's spirit when there's some greenness and some lushness and some freshness. Do you know God designed every one of those? And he designed them for your psyche and for mine. Our lives are loaded with these things. I wish I had time, but my wife is known as Goose because uh, our granddaughter was listening to her as she read Mother Goose Rhymes, and Mother Goose had half glasses, and Elsie has half glasses. So ever since, she thinks that's the most beautiful name that anybody ever had, Goose. Well, our grandchildren this Easter fixed her an Easter basket and then hid it for her. She found it in the horse trailer. And when she got it, there, there were not three geese, but there were three ducks, mallard ducks. And so we had to take those three mallard ducks home. I thought, that'll be no problem if they'll just stay alive. So we fed them, and boy, they grew beautifully. And I thought, this will be great because there's a pond right behind our house. But I didn't know that a duck needs a mother to teach it that water's safe. So when these ducks got up pretty good size, I got out there with a broom and chased them into the water. And then I turned around, and when I came back, bang, here they came, lickety-split following me. They didn't want to have anything to do with that pond. But you know, it was amazing what would happen to Elsie when she'd look at those things. Didn't matter how out of sorts she was with me, before she got through with those things, she was laughing and in a good humor. Now, God has put these things in our world. Our world is a magnificent place, and he made it to restore our spirit. It may be literature, I don't know what it is, but God knows our spirits need restoring, and one of the things that does it is fellowship, conversation with the right person. I don't know about anybody else, but you let me have a, the right kind of conversation under the right circumstances, and I come out renewed. Because we draw strength from each other, and God has made our world to renew us and to restore us. And certainly that's why we, one of the reasons we have the Scripture. I don't know anybody else, but about, any, about anybody else, but you let me, give me a block of time and let me start. First chapter's not too bad, the second chapter's a little better, the third chapter, yeah, this is all right, the fourth chapter, I don't have to quit, do I? And I bet you that speaks for many other people in this audience, too. He, he, he has his ways of restoring our souls. 
and he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I tell you, my stories are too long, so I've got to move faster. But anyway, I think when he says he leads us in paths of righteousness, it is not just that they're, they're, they are morally correct, it is that they are correct and right everywhere. I don't know about anybody else, but one of the greatest thrills to me in the Christian life is that when you walk with him and your past and your, fu- your future turns into your past in front of your eyes and you see the way he has led you, you find that he's led you right. And you don't have great regrets. You don't have regrets for wasted time or energy put on bypass, but he's led you straight. He leads you. And that's a commitment. He has, a, he, has a, he has made a promise to us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to guide us, and he guides us through our days, and oftentimes when we never know we're being guided, he is there leading and directing us. I had a professor at Brandeis, who, a Lutheran, Islamic scholar from Hungary, and when Nazism began in Hungary to, to lay its hold on national life, and people began to get self-conscious about anything Jewish, he laid his Hebrew Bible down on his university desk open. And his colleague, professors, came along and said, Joseph, isn't that Jewish? Oh, he said, it's the most Jewish thing in the world. And they said, what have you got it here for? That's dangerous, don't you know? He said, I'm a Christian, what are you? Every one of them was either a Lutheran or a Catholic. But he was a man with that kind of courage. One night he said... At seven o'clock, there was the door rang, and he said, I went, and he said, there was a policeman who said, Dr. Desamaji, because he was nationally known, he said, I will be back at nine o'clock with two Gestapo agents to get you. I would appreciate it if you would disappear. And he said, my life was saved that way. Communists dealt with him almost the same way. And then he said, after the the war and the communists were in control. He said, my name was on a list to be sent to Siberia. And he said, the, the Italian head of the Communist Party made a speech blasting the heads of the Communist Party in Hungary, and it made the Hungarian communists mad, and they quit making political arrests for a few days. He said, during that time, I had an opportunity to go to an international Semitics conference in Vienna. And he said, uh, I applied for a visa, and they wouldn't give it to me. So I applied again, and they wouldn't give it to me. I applied a third time, and they turned me down. So he said, I decided I'd go personally. He said, when I got to the building where the office was, where you got your visa, he said to me, Dennis, I was so angry that I decided I'd walk up the stairs instead of take the elevator. And he said, when I stepped off on the landing on the second floor, I bumped right into a former student of mine who in good Hungarian fashion embraced me and said, oh, Dr. Desamaji, what are you doing here? Well, he said, I need a visa to go to a conference in Vienna. He said, "Uh, could I help you? Well, he said, do you have any influence up there? Yeah, he said. The secretary to the boss is my fiancé. <laughs> so he said, yes, I would appreciate your going with me. They walked in, and 
His former student looked at his fiancée and said, Dr. DeSomage needs a, pass, a visa to go to Austria, Vienna. And she hesitated, bit her lip, looked up and said, you know that I can't do that. He said, what do you mean you can't do it? You know that he's on the list. And he looked down at his fiancée and said, either you give him a visa or cancel our wedding plans. He said she burst into tears, got up and walked to the window, wept a while, came back, sat down, gave Dr. DeSomage his visa. He said, when I got off the train in Vienna, there was a telegram from H.H. H. Rowley in Manchester, England, saying, Joseph, we don't have an adequate post for you, but we have a stipend that can keep you alive until something better comes along. And when I knew him, he was a Semitic librarian at Harvard University. I'll never forget, looking over lunch, he said to me, Dennis, do you think it was an accident that I took the stairs that day instead of the elevator? Now, he leads us. He leads us. He leads us when we don't even know we're being led. And then we find that he has guided us. He's our shepherd. He cares. Now, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Is it all positive? No. He is very clear that there are negative elements in the life of the sheep that belongs to that shepherd. It isn't a health and welfare gospel, and he's not the one who solves all our problems, so we never have them. You will notice he says, though you walk through the valley, he will permit you to get into valleys, and there are valleys that have the shadow of death over them, the darkness there. But he says, yes, you will have to go through some of those, because, you know, one of the reasons, because God is no respecter of persons and he will not protect his children from being a part of our fallen world. And in our fallen world, things are wrong. And it is right that things should be wrong in a fallen world. The only thing worse than a fallen world that has pain in it would be a fallen world that didn't have pain in it. Because a fallen world is a world that's wrong, and a world that's wrong ought to be wrong. And our world is wrong, and we're in it. And he came and lived in it, and he's going to let us live in it. And while we're in it, we have our opportunity to give our witness to him. And in the valley of the shadow of the death, we don't have to fear evil because he is with us, and if he is there, it really doesn't matter where you are as long as he's there. Now, uh, if we would let him teach us that and if we would believe it, we would have an opportunity to witness. Do you know the people who have influenced my life the most? It's not a one of them who didn't suffer. The person who has never suffered has nothing to say to most of But it's the person who has suffered and won the battle victoriously through Christ and been able to live through it victoriously and joyously in the grace of Christ, that person can be a source of great strength to you. I'll never forget a very a lady, older lady who influenced me greatly who was losing her sight, and I went to see her. She looked at me incriminatingly and said, Dennis, you came to comfort me, didn't you? And I guiltily said, well, yes. 
And she looked back at me and said, you wouldn't deprive me of the lessons to be learned in the darkness that can never be learned in the light, would you? Because you'll find something about his grace and his presence in the darkness you'll never find in the sunshine. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, God is the one who creates darkness and lives in darkness. Great darkness. You don't have to be afraid of the dark. He is there. So he says, The A, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for... Now, it's interesting at this point, it is the only place in the psalm that he moves from the third person to the second person. Will you hear me? I know you're getting antsy and ready to go, but get this if you don't hear anything else. All the early part and the rest of it is third person. He's talking about God, the third person. But when he gets down to this, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he shifts from he to you, and he turns to God himself, and he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God has stepped out of the third person in that moment of difficulty, and, and he is with him, and he knows it. He says, You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemy. Not only are there valleys to go through, but you will find opposition. Read the Gospels and you will find that Jesus never told us that it would not be a battle and that we would, he never told us we would not have enemies that would fight. There are battles to be won. But what interests me is the way he says that I'll prepare a table before you in the presence of my enemy. Now you've got to know a little Near Eastern stuff to get the full thrust of that. Because you see, in the ancient Near East, if a person sits down at your table, you're obligated to protect him. If he's got your food in his stomach, you're obligated to protect him. So God says, you want to get rid of your fears? I got my table prepared here. Sit down and eat a little of my food, and then I'm committed to protecting you and taking care of you. Now, it's interesting where he makes that arrangement with us. He does it in the presence of our enemies. Now, why does he feed us in the presence of our enemies? Because the enemy is watching, says, wait a minute, that guy's got God's food in his stomach. If I touch him, I don't have him to deal with. I have the Lord to deal with. So the psalmist says, I find security because I have his food in my stomach. Let me ask you, is that a promise of the Lord's Supper? Certainly it isn't consistent with us. And what is the body of Christ? The body of Christ are those who have eaten his flesh and drunk his blood. We have his food in our stomach, and he is committed to care for us. So he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I've never gotten around to getting control the way I'd like to have of the references in the Bible to the house of the Lord. You remember how in the Psalms it keeps talking about uh, he, uh, a day in the, the house of the Lord is, you know, what it's worth and uh, how he wants to be there. And There's a joy in the temple that isn't found anywhere else. And I've wondered, you know jolly well that all the times in the temple weren't that glorious, but the temple is a symbol of where he is. And he says, it's not this house and not the fellowship with the priests here but it's in his house and the fellowship with him 
it's so good, it cannot be anything except everlasting. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh. I'll dwell in his house. I'm his sheep. I'll dwell in his house forever because he won't let me go. Now that's the word I'd like to leave with us before we go. He's our shepherd. We're his sheep, the sheep of his hand. He's our king. And he's responsible for caring for us. And all of the resources of his kingdom are available to us. 